0: Alright, all you movie junkies, it is time for the SLS Cast, with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 85 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is the Federalist Papers episode of the SLS cast, because it turns out that in 1788, the very last Federalist paper written by Alexander Hamilton was Federalist number 85. Get your patriot on, this here be Matt. (laughs) And this is Tim, and I think we found the
1: episode title for this one, Get Your Patriot On. <laughs> I'm surprised I don't see that on t shirts any 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 time during July fourth or around July fourth. Oh, that's it. We gotta trademark it and put it on shirts and sell
0: it. There you go.
1: Yeah. We just gotta not make we, we need to make sure it's nowhere or nothing like the uh keep on carrying on because that's just been way too overexposed with the various renditions on of
0: oh, keep, or Keep yeah. Calm
1: and Carry oh. On. Yeah, that's what it oh, is.
0: Yeah. That was, yeah, that just, yeah, we have Doctor Who to thank for that, and I'm normally all about thanking Doctor Who for things, but that's just yeah. not one of them, unfortunately. But at any rate, so here we are, where we're having to record a little bit early, we're actually normally record on Mondays, we had, we, we used to record on Tuesdays, we've moved it to Mondays, and uh, now here we are on the 19th of July, a Saturday And uh, having to record a little bit early. So how were the last four days for you? Five days for you there, Tim. It was nice. I went bowling yesterday. That's always exciting, bowling. Did did, did anybody sit there and uh, bust out a nine millimeter because somebody stepped over the line? Uh, Multiple times.
1: Multiple times. Outstanding. Yes.
0: Outstanding. They have big
1: guys wearing huge aviator glasses sitting (laughs) at the line on every single lane. (laughs) <laughs> with a with a with a pistol, just ready to bust some ceiling tiles, Not but standing, yeah. But it was a weird bowling alley. I know. Uh, I mean, the AMFs that I am used to going to, you, of course, it's like the two lanes. You know, you you share the little computer dealy hopper thing. You have your own TV screen, but then like the seating arrangements are normally it makes like this U shaped around the shape around. Like each side of the screen and stuff. So if you have large parties playing on one lane, you know you have enough room to sit down and whatever. And this one had like an awkward semi U horseshoe shape. So it was like a funky looking J shape. (laughs) It was just weird. Yeah. So it's like a. uh, So there was four of us, and a guy with his kid came up. And started playing in the lane next to us. And so luckily it was just a guy and his kid. Because if, if, if one or two more people were there, it would have jeopardized the entire seating situation.
0: And it could have caused for mass chaos. Maybe you just got the uh, handy-capable lane, right? You got the ADA lane. So uh, like at the movie theater now, when you go in, you have got the big movie theater. You go in and then you see like those staggered rows that have like chunks of seats missing so that wheelchair access can be provided. Maybe you just got that, so that you, there's only supposed to be two regular people, and then you have space for wheelchair access, so they can just sit there in their wheelchairs and not have to get out of the wheelchairs.:
1: I thought that was the case, but I assessed every single lane, and I have came to the, come to the conclusion that either the entire bowling alley is for the handicapped, or it's just a really weird AMF bowling alley
0: either one is entirely possible true especially when it comes to AMF
1: yeah <laughs> they really need the business apparently <laughs> so yeah yeah so
0: how's your four days going past four days been um you know it was pretty much just work and uh, that was about it and then this morning has been non-stop getting the car fixed uh, got a uh when I got my new Chevy back in January February or whatever it had a warranty on it and all that good stuff and've uh, been having some issues and decided to take advantage of said warranty and since I don't need this particular car as I go as I'm going out of town to go to New Mexico which I'll be able to fill you in for episode 86 let you know how all that fun stuff was Um it, it uh, yeah I just went ahead and told them what was wrong with it, got everything worked out, and dropped it off. So then I had to go and get the haircut, go to the bank, go, you know, all that, all the that stupid stuff. Can you get me some meth while you're in New Mexico? Sure, sure. I'll head down to ABQ and see what happens for you. Yeah. <laughs> I'll look for the blue stuff.
1: Pardon me, but I would like to buy some meth. <laughs>
0: Can you please help me? Uh, I noticed on TV that uh, apparently it is popular here. Can I get some? <laughs> I would like the blue kind, please, not uh, you know, not not the other kind. It's funny cuz like there
1: I mean, and people were really surprised about this that after Breaking Bad aired and it became at the popular show as it is now, blue meth started popping up in New Mexico and people, they were, everybody was so surprised and it's like are you kidding me millions of people watch this show I'm pretty sure meth heads watch the show as well and I'm sure there, there has to be one semi knowledgeable meth head or meth cook who would be like you know what I, I this might be a great
0: profitable thing to go along with and so they made blue meth sure the marketing has got to be there I mean who I mean I, I'm sure there had to be some enterprising chicken guy out in New Mexico and he said you know I think I'm going to go and open me uh you know those uh, pollos, uh hermanos. hermanos right you know the the chicken brothers and uh, and then who and then probably he was selling little baggies of blue pixie dust right the the stuff that that you would get in the straw, right, the, the, that candy yeah. that everybody used to eat when they were kids, and then just get the little pixie dust and put it, and then, and now, with every chicken order, you get some Heisenberg, and then, just, yeah. Some Heisenberg. <laughs> yeah. He- See, that'd be great, like,
1: sriracha-type sauce. Oh, I need to put a little bit of Heisenberg to spice up my omelet.
0: Blue Heisenberg. Yeah, blue heisenberg blue, blue.
1: well i have yeah. a little bit of uh, news of the weird that ooh lay it on us sir it's what do you got what it's you not it's well i mean i'm not going to talk about it i'm going to send you the link and you're going to talk about it because it's it's usually <laughs> funny ep- it's another interactive episode is it that's right. correct and this is brought <laughs> to you right. by <laughs> uh, this is brought to you by dangerousminds.com and I I love following these guys. I, I follow them on Facebook. So every time I I look on, go on Facebook on my phone or whatever. Usually, maybe once a day, they post a very interesting article. And some of it's like BuzzFeed esque type of material where it's like, these people are stupid. Here is why. Look at these pictures. But it's definitely more of the. Offbeat and more interesting stuff, like things that or are, are are somewhat significant and not just complete fluff. Oh,
0: I, I have I have just heard the magic tone of the, you know the little Coink. noise. So let's see here. We'll pull it up and up. Oh, here we go. Okay, let's see here. Oh yes, anatomical lingerie. Wow. Well, I guess uh, maybe maybe it. Oh, this is like total fetish panties, right? These are total total fetish panties because now, when you want to come on them, you can still come in them. Is that the idea? Oh yeah, baby. <laughs> fucking pound that ovary, just slap that ovary, and then you can just slap the area of the ovary with your penis or whatever other implement you'd like to use and then when it's time to actually come, you can be like oh yeah, I'm fucking all over that fucking uterus yeah, ah, look at that fucking hurt the back of that cervix ah, right, is that the idea? that was very
1: graphic, that was more graphic (laughs) than what I intended (laughs)
0: Uh, but oh, I like baby, how lick that fallopian tube. I yeah, I I don't know. I I know is this, this kind is of this your new episode title. <laughs> yeah, th- those
1: ovaries are just asking to be flicked on this underwear. Like it, it's just like ovary, and it's like you just want to go up and just like go bink. But I I like how this underwear. It's not attractive whatsoever. It, it purely and I it, it's it's granny panties. That's what it looks like. And it yes. also doesn't help that the woman who's modeling these is standing in front of a wall with wallpaper on it
0: from <laughs> I don't know, like it looks like the material of the couch that your grandma actually owns. <laughs> exactly. that, that's what it looks like. It looks with like the, the, the red back flowers side of and the couch. Yeah, the red carnations. Flower-ty. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Who would buy these? I mean, I, I mean.
1: This is underwear that is not made to be worn under clothes, unless you have some kind of weird science interest or something.
0: I I don't know. It's just, this is a little weird. Yeah. I gotta say, though, that I must agree with the quote here, that these little see-through briefs have been described as, uh, quote, incredible, quote, amazing, quote, a work of art, and bluntly as, and this is my favorite, quote, the best sex deterrent ever and all quotes because ladies and gentlemen that's what it is although with rule 34 you never can tell
1: <laughs> well among <sighs> other things i smell stocking stuffer this christmas
0: <laughs> <laughs> it'll stuff some kind of hole that's for sure okay <laughs> <laughs> ah terrible terrible uh, okay well let's uh, sh- you, you want to go ahead and do the real news now yes <laughs> Okay, (laughs) here we go, folks. It's the news. Oh, my God. All right, here we go. First up for me, from Time.com, courtesy of Megan Gibson, the trailer for Ouija is here and it's terrifying. Well, I don't know if it's terrifying or not, but I did view the trailer. It is interesting. Much better than with Battleship. And why am I saying Battleship? I'll tell you why. Turns out that, yes, the Hasbro game is getting its own horror movie. Are you ready to be terrified? If the answer is a resounding yes, then check out the trailer for the upcoming horror film Ouija. And of course, this is spelled Ouija, O-U-I-J-A, because that's what the board game is, right? The film is the latest in a rash of Hasbro board game to big screen adaptations, though from the looks of the trailer, Ouija will have a decidedly different tone from Battleship and even the Transformers films. The movie stars Olivia Cook, Darren Kagasoff, Douglas Smith, and Bianca A. Santos as a group of friends who use the board to connect with their dead friend. With a team of producers who collectively worked on certifiably chilling films like Paranormal Activity, Insidious, The Unborn, The Purge, Friday the 13th, and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the film is almost certain to be horrifying. Of course, This isn't the first time that the Ouija board has appeared in a horror movie. The board has had key roles in The Exorcist and the Paranormal Activity films. But with an October 24th release of Ouija, the terrifying seance-conducting game, we'll be getting the starring role it deserves. And again, I did actually look over this trailer, and it is pretty interesting. I... Uh, also happened to at the same uh either just before i saw this one or just after i also happened to check out the teaser trailer for annabelle which is a prequel to the conjuring and i think it was the conjuring right yeah it's basically the opening of the conjuring is the story of it all and i gotta tell you if that's the teaser trailer I don't need to see the actual trailer trailer, because holy fuck, that thing creeped me the... I mean, just creeped the shit out of me. Uh, I was, you know... I was definitely surprised by this. Yeah. Woo! So, nice segue into a wholly different area that I wasn't planning on talking to. But, anyways, so what do you got, sir? Have you ever crapped your pants
1: due to being so scared? Like, have you ever shit your pants?
0: Because something was so terrifying... Thankfully, the answer is no. And having been uh, uh, armed—or not armed—having been robbed, kidnapped, and carjacked, and then robbed on a separate occasion, um, I I can honestly say that I'm pretty sure I've been in some high-stress, scary situations. And thankfully, did not shit the pants. (laughs) Oh, that—that's another episode title
1: right there. Matt did not shit the pants. <laughs> you can shit the pants if you want to. Be your friends of mine. Because if you shit your pants and I shit my pants and you shit your pants and mine. Alright, first up for me. Okay, from the. I'd rather hungry... you have that be the title.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry, Carolyn. First up for me.
1: <laughs> From uh, the HollywoodReporter.com article written by Alex Ben Block entitled TED Studios Seth MacFarlane Sued for Stealing Foul Mouthed Teddy Bear Exclusive. And this is what it says A California production company is claiming that Seth MacFarlane and his company stole the idea for the R rated talking teddy bear in the hit movie TED. According to a lawsuit filed Tuesday in the U.S. District Court in Los Angeles, Bengal Mangle Productions created a screenplay called Acting School Academy in 2008 that featured a foul-mouthed, womanizing teddy bear named Charlie. The suit says that Charlie, the Charlie character, like Ted, lives in a human adult world with, a human, uh, with all human friends, Charlie has a penchant for drinking, smoking, prostitutes, and is generally vulgar yet humorous character, states the lawsuit, which also names TED producer Media Rights Capital and distributor Universal Studios. Acting School Academy became a web series that was shown on YouTube, Facebook, iTunes, FunnyOrDie.com, Vimeo.com, and elsewhere. It got at least 1.2 million views between July 2009 and June 2012, according to the complaint. On June 29th, 2012, the, Ted, uh, the movie Ted, directed and co-written and produced by McFarlane, who also starred, was released through Universal and grossed $550 million do- dollars worldwide. The highest-grossing R-rated comedy of the year. A sequel is in the works. The character says... The suit is strikingly similar to the plaintiff's Charlie character. The suit alleges that Charlie and Ted have a similar physical attributes and similar vulgar traits, and that both live in a similar environment, have human friends, and maintain an active social media presence. In addition to McFarlane, the suit names, as defendants, McFarlane's company, Fuzzy Door Productions. There is no immediate response to a request for comment. From McFarlane or Universal Pictures. End all quotes. So th- this is pretty interesting, and you know the article. Actually, yeah, that was pretty much the whole article right there. I, they, I, it's interesting. I mean, I've read a couple articles about this, and a, a couple people have said between 2009 or 2010, and, or June 2000 or July 2009 and June 2012, it received 1.2 million views. For something that's really popular, they were saying that that's really not that much. I mean, it's a lot, but for a two-year period, or three-year period, that's really not that much. And though that makes sense, I went online and watched a little bit of the foul mouth Charlie Bear character, you know, little skits and whatever, and though it's not the same... It is the same. I mean, the character is definitely foul-mouthed, has definitely some of the character traits. But the thing with Ted is that not only is Ted drastically better than this Charlie character, there are definitely some redeeming qualities about the Ted character. And so this is going to be something interesting, because I definitely think this suit has some legitimacy, and especially since... This Charlie character, Charlie Bear character, has been around since at least two thousand and eight. So, I'll be looking forward to
0: seeing what comes out of this. Wow, me too. I, I didn't realize that it was actually that meritorious. I thought that it was uh, another one of those Harold Porter things. So,
1: yeah, no, and the char- the Charlie
0: Bear thing is to- it's crappy. I mean, it's oh no, shit, no, no I-, I understand that. but... There- I was just drawing the allusion uh, to uh, Harold Porter was a a creation of a woman who said that J.K. Rowling ripped her off by creating Harry Potter. Right. And there were some really striking similarities between the, the two works, and Harold Porter was clearly first, and... There's also some wizardry and, kind of, and some stuff like that in there as well. Whatever came but out of that. The the lady lost like every single step of the way. I mean, it wasn't... This was not like Warner Brothers had stepped in from, you know... I mean, she literally... She lost and then she appealed it. She lost and she tried a different way and she still lost. And then she appealed that and she lost. And then she appealed like that again. I mean, she, you know, yeah. So it's just similar. So it, it's kind of interesting. I, I, I will definitely be... Uh, Looking forward to hearing your follow-up reporting on that, sir. Oh, yeah. Uh, Let's see. Next up for me, uh, we have from ComingSoon.net, which is sourcing Entertainment Weekly, Jack Black Talks Goosebumps Films, where also First Images debut. Viewers beware, you're in for a scare. Next summer, the big-screen adaptation of Goosebumps will debut featuring Jack Black as the author of the series... R. L. Stein. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. And kids, get your 90s boners on. Entertainment Weekly via (laughs) Bloody Disgusting has (laughs) debuted the first images of the film, which you can check out by going to see the article here. Quote: I play R. L. Stein, who's not in any of the books, but he's an essential character in this movie. Which is all about when all of his characters come to life. It was kind of a great way to bring out all of the scary beasts and monsters from all of his books in one movie, end quote. He went on to talk about the age-appropriate, this is of course Jack Black talking, he goes on to talk about the age-appropriate scares of the book, translating to the big screen. Quote, kids like scary movies, but you can't take them to what are the big scary movies now, where Satan comes out and bites your genitals off. Those movies can actually leave you mentally scarred. That's not for kids. When, but when, kids, movie, when does that happen? At? I've never seen that movie, and I would like to. <laughs> uh, well, I do think... I seem to recall... This is the end. I don't think that's technically a horror yeah, movie, but well, I'm pretty think... sure somebody like loses a dick. Well, I there don't anything. remember Satan ever coming out and biting somebody's genitals off. I know that... I have, however, seen something where some chick gets like... Is it a chick or somebody does get their like genitals mutilated or something? Well, I mean, I don't remember if it was the the porn does Emily Rose or something. Somebody like got their shit eaten out though. Like I think they were like wearing those, you know, those the, those anatomically correct panties, and somebody went to town. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> but to continue with the quote, <laughs> that's not for kids. But kids still like to get a little thrill and a little danger, so you need projects like this. End quote. And here, I really like what this is about. Okay, so they go on to talk about what the actual—it's coming coming out August seventh, twenty fifteen. It's going to be directed by Rob Letterman. But this is what the actual movie is about. In Goosebumps, upset about moving from a big city town, uh, big from a big city to a small town, teenager Zach Cooper finds a silver lining when he meets the beautiful girl Hannah living right next door. But every silver lining has a cloud, and Zach's comes when he learns that Hannah has a mysterious dad who is revealed to be R.L. Stein, the author of the best selling Goosebump series. It turns out that there is a reason why Stein is so strange. He is a prisoner of his own imagination. The monsters that his books made famous are real, and Stein protects his readers by keeping them locked up in their books. When Zack unintentionally unleashes the monsters from their manuscripts and they begin to terrorize the town, it's suddenly up to Stein, Zack, and Hannah to get all of them back in the books where they belong. I think this sounds great. This sounds like an awesome idea, especially for kids who grew up on Goosebumps and and now those people who are getting their kids into Goosebumps. I really think this this has an opportunity to be a very very fun and inventive family film almost uh, kind of like along the lines of uh, jumanji almost and i don't know I, i'm very excited to hear about this and, and i'm hoping that it does turn out well the production still that they have uh, or stills rather that they have uh, look pretty also look pretty cool i, I gotta say
1: yeah, it sounds kind of like a, an '80s movie, like like Gremlins in a way. Small town, sure. You know, havoc is being wreaked on a small town, and in, uh, like Indiana or something.
0: Oh, absolutely. I yeah, I I I really think this could work out very very well. I'm very excited. So that is that is that is. That's the end of the article, folks. Go ahead, <laughs> take it away, Tim. Alrighty, so. A couple
1: guys from the MPAA, I guess MPAA alums, decided to go and create their own company where they help filmmakers. Like they teach them how to avoid an R rating, guiding them because I guess some people just really don't know how to follow directions on the MPAA website or really kind of like get the gist of you know, really I mean, really what to what what to show and what not to show. I mean, a lot of people complain about the MPAA but I, I mean you know how to avoid an R rating if you need to yeah i don't know like there's just been so many examples of movies over the years where it's like okay but you know back when like this this film was not yet rated came out it was great because like it talked about all of these movies that came out in the i, I what like in the ni- early 90s mid 90s where it was it, it really was an issue A big, big issue. And one of the great stories is the girl, uh, the woman who directed Boys Don't Cry, Kimberly Pierce. She directed the 1999 film Boys Don't Cry. And she had to, she was trying to avoid an NC-17 rating because she really wanted the R rating, so, you know, because you have to have an R rating so the movie will be a bigger distribution and yada yada yada. And a lot of movies were in trouble in the 90s and early 2000s because... The MPAA was, and it definitely is still super duper conservative. And it's just, it's very interesting. And what's interesting about this article, Hollywood, the HollywoodReporter.com, MPA alum service, uh, launch service to help filmmakers avoid our ratings, written by Tim Apello. Uh, they talk about how some people think they need it. I mean, obviously, the two guys that started this company. Uh, Barry Freeman and Howard Frutkin think this is something that every filmmaker, that most filmmakers need guidance on. Then you have other people that say, like, it's... I mean, you, you go on the MPAA website, and you read their rules, or you look at movies how and see how they've been rated, and you look at, you know, raunchy movies that are trying to get PG-13, or R-rated movies that almost became NC-17 but went with an R rating. You just watch that, you you study that, and then you have a pretty good idea what to do and what not to do. But then you look at movies like um, the South, uh, South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. Uh, one of the funnier MPAA stories, scandal stories, which I can't remember if this film was not yet rated, cover it, covered it or not. But Trey Parker and Matt Stone got in trouble because they had too much language. Like, they said the F word, way too much. And so they got pretty pissed off, and when they went back to recut the movie, they added they added in more vulgar language and vulgar stuff in it. And when they showed the MPAA, they liked it, and they gave it an R rating, which is kind of funny. And so that right there shows how kind of messed up and two-sided these people can be. And so this, I mean, I'm not going to really read the article, but... Uh, to you guys, but if you're interested check it out. Again, it's MPAA Alums Launch Service to help filmmakers avoid R ratings. What do you think, Matt? Do you think this is something that filmmakers need? Is guidance or
0: Well, I would say to a certain degree, yes. And and here's why. Here's why. Uh, not because they don't know off the bat what is going to get an R rating per se but people do there are established movie directors and production teams who will go and shoot a movie and know that they're close but not sure how close and so they'll submit hoping for the best and then they get notes back from the MPAA they clean up what they want to clean up or not and there they go So if you're going to have people who used to be part of the MPAA and used to be in that process who would submit the notes or look at the, you know, and look at this stuff. And they're going to be telling new filmmakers um, or maybe not even necessarily new filmmakers, but people who are not quite as established. Hey, look, these are what these are things that people have already tried and have gotten away with. And these are things that people have already tried and did not get away with. Then you're you're doing nothing. But uh, at at best, you're saving people tons of money and tons of time and streamlining their process on their end. And at worst, um, you know you're coddling some people who may not need to be coddled. So I can see that to a certain extent, this could be useful. But uh, how well it's going to be truly taken advantage of for the people who would need it? It's too hard to say. Because, again, the MPAA is a very political body. Yeah, actually, I'm going to read a
1: a couple little segments from this article to correct possible wrongness that I might have reported. Uh, What it says here is that Barry Freeman and Howard Fritkin, who were both longtime members of the ratings board, uh, think this is a great idea. They say that we know exactly what to suggest... We spent 10 years on the board alongside Freakin, who served for 13 years. Both stepped down in October to make way for new members. For fees ranging from $3,999 to $11,999 per film, their new venture, the first opened by former members of the board, offers to assess a movie's ratings potential and suggest any necessary, uh, necessary changes before film is submitted to the board. The MPAA charges another $2,500 to $25,000 to rate each film. But Joan Graves, chairman of the Classification and Ratings Administration, says that filmmakers don't need outside advisors since the board already provides similar services. CARA is constantly reading scripts, conducting pre-production advisories, and answering specific questions at every stage of production, she says. That is a relatively recent development, though. For years, directors and producers, particularly indie filmmakers who lacked a major studio's clout complained that the board's decisions were often difficult to predict. A criticism that was featured front and center in Kirby Dick's 2006 documentary, this film is not yet rated. The following year, the MPAA instituted a number of changes, and ratings board member Scott Young was named filmmaker liaison, charged with opening up the lines of communication. That's very transparent now, says Ethan Noble, who runs another company, Motion Pictures Consulting. That assists filmmakers taking films before the board. A former Miramax marketing director, Noble, has handled appeals for the Weinstein company on films like Blue Valentine and The King's Speech. His office offers scripts advice, explain the board's ratings uh, rationale and flags particular scenes and issues suggesting how they could be edited to get a desired rating. That's not enough though, Freeman and Friedkin contend. Addressing Noble's services, Friedkin says, "He's never been on the board." He's just a middleman. He does it for Harvey Weinstein and a lot of the New York-based people, but Ethan doesn't know the tricks, or the magic potion, the secret sauce. He may know the process, but he doesn't know the due process. End all quotes. And you can read Noble's Retort and all that stuff if you are interested on this Hollywoodreporter.com article entitled, MPAA Alums Launch Service to Help Filmmakers Avoid R -R 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 -R
0: -R 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 Ratings. Moving along, then I'm going to go to uh, zap 2 itcom Zap the number two it.com. Courtesy of Terry Schwartz. Uncharted to start filming in early 2015. Director Seth Gordon says. Director Seth Gordon is busy trying to get in as much work as he can on his returning hit The Goldbergs and his new NB series Marry Me before his entire schedule gets consumed by the long in development adaptation of the video game Uncharted. A film of Uncharted has been in development since early 2008, with directors David O. Russell and Neil Berger both accepting the project and then eventually passing on it. Gordon is confident that Uncharted will finally get its movie adaptation this go around because of both its timing to the upcoming Uncharted 4, a Thief's End video game, as well as the fact that the team, quote, just got the script to a really good place, end quote. When asked when he expects Uncharted to go in front of the camera, Gordon says, quote, I think very early next year. That's the plan. End quote there. Though that is months from now, he notes, quote, that's like tomorrow, essentially, because the prep is so complicated for the movie. End quote. Mark Wahlberg was previously attached to play the character of Nathan Drake, and Gordon says the production is still looking for an actor of Wahlberg's caliber. Depending on what you think, that might not be very difficult. Quote, I want it to be a great actor. That's number one. And then if it's someone who has an actual job, that's even better. The game is so well done that you need to live up to that. There's no way we do the inverse of that, where it's somebody famous who can't act. End quote. Um, They go on to talk about a few of the things from how he likes to cast people who used to be in TV, but they are going to do the plot as a point of basing from the original game and then moving on from there so that they can keep the spirit of the game intact, but not do something verbatim because if you've played through the games, then why would you want to just watch what you just played? That's the idea behind it. Um, Tim, I don't know. I mean, I know you're not quite as much into video games as I am and stuff, but uh, this has been something that people have been clamoring for for a while. Do you think that it's a good idea? Or um, maybe we don't need another Indiana Jones, or what?
1: I I think so. I mean, what's kind of cool is that I hope Nathan Fillion gets the role, because I know he, for years, uh, at least a couple years ago, he was trying to get the job as the character in Uncharted. Not only does he look like him, but I don't. He might bring the fun humor, you know, that he so lovingly gave us all in Firefly and Serenity. You know, I,
0: I think that would tra- uh, translate well to this type of movie. I would just, I like, I, I, can certainly understand where you're coming from on that. I just honestly, I think he's too old. Oh well, um, that too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can see that. And and, I, and it, don't, don't get me wrong. I, this has nothing to do against. To, to I mean, it's just a literal. His age, I think, is just uh, at this point is too old. I think maybe ten years ago, when they first wanted to do the development of this movie, then sure. But yeah.
1: Anyway, let's see. I'll just knock out the rest of my news, and I'm just going to mention just mention two of. I, well, I mean, I, I have three more little pieces, but I'll combine them into one somewhat quick piece. Uh, first one is that uh, Stanley was being questioned about uh, Avengers Age of Ultron and Marvel and all this stuff and there's a series of quotes from him about uh, what he thinks about the Marvel films and what they've done to the comics and how these movies have definitely helped comics and getting people into comics and all that stuff and finding new listener or new readers and uh, a new generation of comic book fans. And here's a couple quotes of some stuff that he said. And this is from Totalfilm.com. Stanley shares some advice for Batman vs. Superman, written by George Wales. And this is what he said: "All I can do is make it better for Mar. Or all I can do is make it better for Marvel. If we do these movies and the movies are successful, there are people reading Marvel comic books that would have never thought to read a comic book before. It helps the comic book business. The movie business has been unbelievably incredible. The Marvel movies are about the biggest m- making movies of all time. We've got the best directors, the best special effects people, and wonderful actors. People that had not been big stars before, like the fellow who plays Thor, Chris Hemsworth, he doesn't even know his name, which is kind of funny. He's wonderful. I was with him yesterday. I did my cameo, of course. And as for the rival stable, DC, Lee has a few words of advice on how they can guarantee Batman vs. Superman is a hit. And this is what Stan Lee says. DC could probably make a lot more money with Superman and Batman if they announce that I'd have a cameo in it, chuckles Lee. People wouldn't believe it. They'd have to go to the theater to see it. End quotes. And next up is Kevin Feig, or Feige, or Feig, one of those. He's the cons of filmmaker names. This is what he said in regards to Edgar Wright's Ant-Man and his leaving. And he's, he, this is what he uh, said to The Guardian. The Marvel movies are very collaborative, and I think they are more collaborative than what he had been used to, he being Edgar Wright. And I totally respect that. But the notion that Marvel was scared, the vision was too good, too far out for Marvel, is not true. And I don't want to talk too much about that because I think our movies speak to that. Go look at Iron Man 3. Go look at The Winter Soldier. Go see Guardians of the Galaxy later this month. It would have to be really out there to be too out there for us. Do you agree with that, Matt? Do you think they're just kind of like covering themselves because possibly Edgar Wright's movie was a little bit more offbeat than what they're used to?
0: I don't know. I mean, he's the president of production for Marvel Studios, and he's the president for a reason. And he is the president prior to the buyout by Disney, and he's still the president of production uh, post-buyout by Disney. I mean, the guy's got $8.3 billion in box office receipts because of his overseeing of things. So, I'm gonna go with I got to side with him on this. I mean, he seems to know he's got a track record of knowing what he's talking about and doing what's going to be best for the consumer, which by then, by translation is going to be the best thing for the studio. So, I I, I don't know. I kind of lean towards what he said on this one.
1: Right on. And uh, that'll just wrap up my news. I'll save the next one for next week.
0: Okay, well then, just real quick, uh, also continuing on with Kevin Feige. I'm just going to go with Feige. That's how I'm saying it. (laughs) From ComicBookMovie.com, courtesy of DC Marvel Freshman, Uh, Marvel is not altering Captain America 3 despite Batman v Superman. Basically, they are not changing anything, and they are releasing on the same day. Captain America 3 and Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice are currently scheduled for release on May 6th. 2016. And Feige says, we're not backing down. We, we like doing them on weekends, and if somebody wants to join us, well, that's not as great as we would like, but we're not changing. And that's it. That's it. The, that's my news. That's The, the news. ultimate movie throwdown might be that combination. I, I sincerely hope that they that neither one backs down, because it will be at that point what's really gonna... I mean, it's just gonna be ridiculous, the amount of money. I, I could see both of these things getting like 60-70 million dollars a piece and then everybody's like what the fuck that could have been our 140 million dollars it's gonna be great <laughs> seeing who makes more on the midnight showings of it Like, I don't know they're, they're getting so ridiculous now yeah. that it's, it's not even worth it, it, it they used to be you know that one midnight showing, and then you were like, "Yeah," and then they're like, "Oh, looks people want to go to the midnight showing. Oh, now let's do three or four midnight showings in the same theater." And then it's like, "Oh, okay, well, still people are going." And now it's like, "Oh, well, hey, people are like it. Let's make, let's treat them like sneak previews." and yeah, we'll like do them at 10 PM. o'clock and midnight. midnight, And now literally, yeah, now it's like you can do an 8, an 8.15, a 10.30, a 10.45, an 11.30, and a midnight. I mean, it's like, why the hell? Are, just fucking release it on a Wednesday. I mean, who cares at that point? And then they also do that so that they can get Thursday receipts, Friday receipts, Saturday and Sunday before they have to, you know, declare a winner. So I don't know. It just it gets totally ridiculous anymore. It's not, you know. No more special little snowflake syndrome. Uh, at any rate, are you ready for the next segment, sir? Yes, sir. All right, then let's do it, folks. Here we go. It is three squared. <laughs> And yes, ladies and gentlemen, the three squared for this week is, of course, the most divisive of our movie reviews. Of, and this is covering all of the episodes, everything from before, from from the classic SLS, or as we were calling it before the show started, the craptastic SLS, uh, and then the reboot, because we're on episode 85 of the reboot. We actually did like. 12 or 13 episodes from way a long time ago and we're including those as well and it's a good thing too because <laughs> we have we, we came to a consensus on what we disagree on <laughs> so we both agree that from episode uh <clears throat> six the movie rubber was definitely um a contentious film review for both of us and this is that's the original episode six. That's from back in 2011, and then episode ten, uh, also from the original series, uh, and from 2011, "Hobo with a Shotgun." We we both agree that those two films were highly contentious. Maybe not the most contentious, but highly contentious. And then episode from the from our current rebooted series, episode 38, "Melancholia." Is, is definitely uh, the film Melancholia from episode 38. Now, we, all, we both agree on those. Now, I'm sure Tim will give you his perspectives on those, as well as I am going to. But because we already agreed on those three films, Tim came up with at least one more. I think he's got two more. And then I've got an additional one as well. And I'm going to go into that. From episode five, back in, the again, the craptastic episodes, we have No Escape. All right. Now this was the 1994 Epic Ray Liotta prison escape film where he plays a guy who kills like his platoon leader or whatever for I can't remember quite why, but then he ends up getting sentenced to this island where there is no escape from this island. It's just not possible. And then, of course, they drop supplies every so often. And, and it's basically just a huge uh, faction thing. It's kind of like Lord of the Flies for adults. Maybe, maybe it's you know, supreme Lord of the Flies for adults. At any rate, so I really like this movie. Um, I mean, it's not the best movie in the world right, by any stretch of imagination. But I thought it was a great 90s action flick. And something that Ray Liotta really needed uh, post-Goodfellas and so i i was very excited when i was like hey tim's gonna we know we're gonna talk about this movie and tim's and so we ended up having like this 20 minute debate on this movie and the whole reason we were debating was this one sticking point and tim was like he had he had misunderstood the sticking point when he had saw the film and I'm like, no, that's not how it went. And then when we actually got it figured out, it was because Tim had been imbibing, as it were. And so we had this big, huge argument. <laughs> Those were the days where I consumed <laughs> a lot of Sailor Jerry and <laughs>
1: and Coca-Cola.
0: <laughs> and, and literally, we had argued for ever for no reason and it is still divisive to me for this day because we because i wasn't even smart enough to edit it and change it i just literally left it as it was us arguing and going back and forth over this stuff and listening to him trash my movie and i I just like are you are, are you fucking shitting me here and uh so for me yes that was that that is my bonus pick uh, no escape from our original craptastic episode 6, not the uh, much better reboot stuff that we have done. Uh, I mean, by comparison, we might still suck. We probably do still suck, but we don't suck as much as we did. <laughs> uh, so that's going to be mine. Now, it, that, that's my little bonus. For the, for the Chief 3, I'm just doing them in order. Uh, of course we have Rubber. This is the 2010, it's a French comedy film about a tire that comes to life and kills people with its psychic powers. Now, we both thought that the movie was exceptionally inventive and definitely had its merits. The problem for me was the way that they chose to bring the movie to life. Now, they do an exposition at the beginning of the film, And then they have the film self. And I felt... And and it basically hung... uh, Hinged... uh, The whole argument is going back and forth on this thing. Hinged on my uh, thinking. Because I didn't like the movie based on the exposition at the beginning of the film. I thought that the exposition at the beginning should have been at the end. Tim loved it. Thought that the exposition was just fine. And totally set up the movie properly so that you would enjoy the movie. And... Uh, we, I mean, we literally just went round and round and round. And I don't even think to this day we have truly ever agreed to disagree. I just didn't like the movie. Now, we we had gone... Uh, I know that uh, I had one of my family members or a friend of mine who watched it. And, and he agreed with my thing. But then my father-in-law, who I thought was good at watching movies. And I thought I could count on it. He actually agreed with Tim. So, to this day... It's, I've even met people who have listened to the show and they're split on it and we've been, so there, there was that. Then Hobo with a Shotgun was a movie where, uh, short, again, episode 10 from the early years, uh, was a movie that I thought perfectly encapsulated all of the grittiness of the 80s, late 70s and early 80s, uh, action film stuff with just complete, uh, you know perfect cinematography they just did an amazing job and totally had fun with it it was and i thought it was just an absolute blast and total fun film and tim wholeheartedly disagreed and so we we went and just we were completely dissecting this film and again never even remotely came to a consensus on this film at all And uh, I still like the film Tim still hates the film I'm sure Uh, Well, I don't want to Let's just say we're on opposing sides (laughs) Uh, I I won't speak for Tim It has been three years now since we watched it (laughs) Oh, no, you're fine You're fine I have
1: not disagreed
0: <laughs> <laughs> He's so, so there you go. He's so, yeah. So there, you are. and then uh, finally, the, of course, the other one that we are totally in in tune on uh, in terms of our uh, disagreement is from the reboot series. Now, now we're only you know this was uh, for, uh, forty seven episodes ago, episode thirty eight when we reviewed the film Melancholia. Uh, this is a Lars von Trier film, and I just from the beginning. I mean, literally, I uh, we, we were texting each other as I was watching the first seven minutes of the movie. And, I mean, and it was going back and forth from there. And then Tim and I uh, got into it pretty good on the recording. So much so that somewhere, this, this stuff was so bad at one point that it's been edited. Like, this was edited down. Tim had to edit it down because we went for so long. Going around So one of these days I'm going to have to dig up Or have Tim dig up The old audio Yeah uh, it was like A 35 minute conversation Yeah And he had So he had to edit it down Uh, There were Literally like We got to one point There's like one 10 I know there's at least A 10 minute segment where I'm like listen to what you just fucking said and he's like no that's not what I said and I'm like yes it is and we're literally like screaming that's not in this review you're not gonna I don't know that you're that's the kind of shit that (laughs) we're gonna have to find again (laughs) Um, (laughs) it it was yeah (laughs) and one of my favorite
1: oh sorry (laughs) no go ahead (laughs) I was gonna say that what I loved about uh, Melancholy well yeah Melancholy Review and especially with The Hobo with... Well, our recordings are significantly better since the rebooted episodes. So you can definitely hear it now. So folks out there, if you listen carefully, if Matt doesn't agree with something, you can hear him do this. Every time. And it's funny because it throws me off sometimes. So I don't even know what the hell I'm saying. I'm just focusing on... (laughs) Or you'll hear him go, ah.
0: like a prolonged. In my defense, <laughs> you did that last week. I, I, you, I, did that la- I you did that last. <laughs> oh, <Matt>. I did. Ah, Jesus, Matt. I did. Yeah. So, anyways, okay. So, so yeah. So, clearly, we just completely disagreed. I hated Melancholia. He loved Melancholia. Um, it's my second. It is definitely for last year. It was the second. It was my second most hated movie, behind Elysium. Elysium was the only one that I gave zero stars, but this was definitely a one star movie for me. So, um, anyways, so so those are the three that we both agree on: uh, Rubber, uh, Hobo with a Shotgun, uh, Rubber from the original series of episodes, episode six, Rubber, episode ten, again original series of episodes, Hobo with a Shotgun, and then of course from the reboot that we've been doing now, uh, episode thirty-eight, Melancholia. My bonus was uh, No Escape from the original series from episode five. So, Tim, go ahead, give us your thoughts on, you know, on your remembrances of Rubber and Hobo with a Shotgun and the fond memories of Melancholia. And then, of course, whatever bonus you have.
1: Yeah, I, Rubber is a good movie. I mean, I've seen it, I watched it once. No, it's not. <laughs> I watched it uh, one more time so, uh, a, a few years ago. Or a couple years ago, and I, I still enjoyed it. I mean, again, I don't think it's a perfect movie, but you watch the trailer, and the trailer hooks you because it's about a killer, <laughs> a killer tire. But for some like the music, the cinematography, it established a character and feelings towards a tire who is just going around living life Killing people, and there's like this underlining thing with it, and the tire has a backstory, and it's just really interesting. And if you're ever going to make a movie about a killer tire, this would be it. And I, you know, I just I liked it, and I like to look at stuff uh, like rubber, and take into consideration that you know it's very, and you know, Matt. I mean, the good things that Matt says about it, I know he definitely took into consideration that it's a very inventive movie. Absolutely. But, and 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 I guess to me it just made up for the <laughs> it made up more for the shortfalls than uh than from Matt's POB. But I think I think it's good. But yeah, that is definitely one of the funnier, more entertaining conversations we've had. But there's two more though that one of them, well, I guess two more, that not, it's not necessarily the conversation, the arguments were entertaining or whatnot, but these are two movies that, in, for some reason, meant a lot to me. Uh, one of them is because I loved the movie and Matt hated it, and another one because the movie just pissed me off, and then Matt liked it, and so that was kind of like the cherry. Well, <laughs> it was the cherry on top for him, but it was kind of like the, the dagger in my side to me. And the first one, the one that I loved, was Black Death. This is the Sean Bean movie from 2000 and... It came out in 2011. Directed by Christopher Smith. This one had Sean Bean, Eddie Redmayne, uh, John Lynch, Tim McLean... <laughs> Kimberly Nixon, and Annie
0: Nim. This is about, uh, well, I mean, Black Death. Eddie Redmayne is a like a young kind of priest kind of kid who goes off with... Uh, um, sean bean's character and they're trying to track down a witch in a um in a village somewhere and this is during the plague and and the people and this witch is saying is basically protecting people from the plague and they're trying to yeah
1: yeah and it's it's a cool movie i mean i that's a period of time that i loved and since i saw the trailer i thought hey you have Sean this is before Sean Bean died in everything. <laughs> and uh and, and so like
0: it really I mean this is before Sean Bean died and everything. Sean Bean was the bad guy in Patriot Games from nineteen ninety fucking three. No, yeah, that's
1: true. This movie launched the I, I guess the overall feeling that Sean Bean dies in everything <laughs> that he's in. Like th- this might have been like the tipping point right here. This and I guess Game of Thrones. But um I mean, from the get-go, from reading the synopsis a year or so before, I was really looking forward to this movie. Went into it with no expectations. I saw it at the movie theater. This was before we had the show. And I loved it. I really, really liked it. Again, not a perfect movie, but I liked the whole... It was very atmospheric. Drew Drew me in from start to finish. And interesting characters. And the ending was very very bleak and but it was a very good bleak it fit and i was really looking forward to seeing this or having matt watch this and i think it came on netflix and um and that's how we decided to, to watch it for the show again very excited couldn't wait for matt to watch it and right off the bat and this was kind of before we talked about the movies beforehand. Now we, before the show, we like to say, oh, hey, you know, what did you think about this? What did you think about that? Just get an idea. You at least soften the blow a little bit.
0: Exactly. And,
1: uh, but my, man, not for this movie. He just completely, he proceeded to stab it in the jugular and <laughs> urinate all over it. Just completely. And it was just, uh, this was definitely one of those ones where it's like you just... Every every pause that he has, I just want to break in and st- completely crap over whatever he just said. <laughs> because I just really like the movie so much. And, you know, I'm sure that's exactly how Matt felt with Hobo with the Shotgun, because I know he thoroughly enjoyed it, and I, I just, I, didn't, I did not care for that movie. And then the second one, the final movie discussion that created some sort of uproar. This was from The Mikey Episodes. Gangster Squad from two thousand and uh, two thousand and twelve. This was the Reuben Fletcher Ruben Fletcher, Fletcher directed film where you have Josh Brolin, you know, Sean Penn, Ryan Gosling. Josh Brolin, and Ryan Gosling are part of the Gangster Squad. It's a their elite group of men formed by the LAPD to take down just based the mob wars that's going on in Hollywood during the forties and fifties, the gang related violence, pretty much headed by Mickey Cohen, the boxer gangster from Chicago, himself. And I was familiar with the backstory, the history of the gangster squad and what what is normally, or I guess more famously called the Sunset Wars or Sunset Battles. And it's a fantastic history. And unfortunately, watching the movie, they decided to glamorize it, Hollywoodize it, and they pretty much took the characters and didn't make history. They didn't make the story about what actually happened. And to me, at least, this was a case where if they made the movie based on what actually happened or actually used the backstory of the characters, took the events that actually happened, and showed them on screen how it went down and like the how everything kind of just how everything just kinda of happened. It would have made for a a significantly significantly better movie. And this is pretty much based off this long article that came out from uh, From a while ago and I think it was called Tales from the Gangster Squad Uh, it was released in, I I forget what magazine or newspaper it was but it was released in in installments and increments over time and it's just great it's definitely a fantastic read and from the discussion when we were talking about it, I had it I printed it out, had it in front of me and I just marked, like had all these notes written and I, I don't know, I probably went off on it for at least maybe 12 minutes just reading through it and just just going off on it, and then Mikey, every like I whenever I finally stop, there was just a silence, and you just hear Mikey in the background going, Yeah, uh just super awkward, not knowing what to do, and then Matt's like, Okay, let's move on to the next thing. And yeah. Kinda like what I'm doing now, just rambling about it. Just ramble, 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 ramble. And so, yeah, those are my two movies: Black Death and Gangster Squad. Uh, Gangster Squad, we talked about that one on Reboot Episode 6. Black Death was from our original Episode 3.
0: Okay, and just so we make sure, because I remember we recapped Rubber, um, Hobo with a Shotgun was 2011 Canadian exploitation action film uh, about the hobo who uh, gets a hold of shotgun and decides to do some vigilante justice in a bad town. And then Melancholia, 2011 drama film from Lars Van Trier, um... About the end of the world uh, as perceived from someone who suffers from uh, like a clinical depression, more or less. And there you go. So I think we're down to the last movies to actually to the section of the movies, are we not? That we are all right oh and i guess next week before we get to the movies next week's bonus segment is going to be did it age well and we're going to be covering the 1991 i think it's 91 92 movie what about bob with bill murray and uh brain fart help me tom tom <laughs> tom
1: something what is isn't. Roseanne's no. old husband in the movie? No. Tom Arnold? No. Tom Arnold's not in it? Uh no. Why do you think Tom uh, Arnold was in the movie? Because he oh was god. in everything in the early 90s.
0: Richard Dreyfus. Oh my god. Yes. Bill Murray and Richard Dreyfus. <laughs> what about Bob? From nineteen ninety-one. <laughs> so did it age well? Alright, here we go, folks. The last segment, of course, is always the movie. Yeah. let's see here the movies this week nothing lasts forever from 1984 the one that was not released but we talked about it last week and of course you could watch it on youtube Uh, then we have of course alan partridge alpha papa and finally life itself the 2014 documentary film on roger ebert uh let's see here i know we're going to be saving life itself for last so which one do you want to start with alan partridge or nothing lasts forever We'll go with uh, Nothing Lasts Forever. Alrighty. Nothing Lasts Forever, science fiction comedy film directed by Tom Schiller. Again, this is from 1984. It was unreleased, but again, you can find it on YouTube. It had... Now, we talked about this last week when Tim brought it up in his news about the unreleased Bill Murray film. Let's make sure we understand here that this was supporting cast only, so don't be expecting... uh, Expecting... Huge swaths of the movie to feature Bill Murray or Dan Aykroyd or anything. Uh, they are literally in there briefly, uh, supporting roles only. And again, I really think that this was more to do with uh, affiliation with Lorne Michaels than anything else, because Lorne Michaels produced this movie,
1: right? And the uh, the director, he did a lot of the shorts. The, the shorts for oh, smell, right. yes,
0: and stuff. yes so you had that going for it as well now as we pointed out before this movie is black and white uh, color segments and stuff but um, black and white and shot in the style of a 40's film uh, which again that was intentional and I thought was pretty cool I think it actually added to the motif and the enjoyment of the film for me um, but Again, it is kind of a weird film a la Brazil, but I did actually like this one, whereas I didn't like Brazil. Um, and one of these days, I guess we'll have to figure out this whole Brazil thing. But um, it's uh, got a very interesting plot. Uh, it's kind of like the, uh, the transit authority has basically taken over the city of New York or, or taken over Manhattan and this young man who has nothing but dreams of being an artist is just basically trying to make his way in this crazy, crazy world and has all these wonderful misadventures, um, you know. To, uh, and, and of course there's finding of true love and all this kind of whatever. Um, anyone who is a fan of the 80s will also notice that Zach Galligan stars in it. Of course, he's from Gremlins. You might remember him from the Gremlins films. All in all, this movie is pretty interesting. It's kind of slow, but not, um, but not inordinately slow. And I think that the the with the whole 40s vibe and the style of the movie that it was, and the way it was shot lends itself to being conducive to the pacing that it that it has, because when you're watching a 40s movie, uh, generally, the, the pacing is a little bit slower than normal, uh, than what we're used to today, but that's usually compensated, because the story is a lot more gripping, there was a lot more dialogue, and a lot more character development back then. They try to do these things here, but basically, the only issue is, is that it's just a little too, the plot itself is a little too zany. Yet... Again, that was also, I think, taken in consideration in which the style was shot, uh, or the style of the movie for the way it was shot. Um, It is an interesting movie. It's not the best movie that I've ever seen by any stretch of the imagination, but I gotta say that even with its, as I've said a few times and we talked about last week, with its kind of comparisons to Brazil, I thought it was, I, I still walk away liking this movie. I give it three stars. What do you you say, Tim? This is a really cool movie. I thoroughly enjoyed it.
1: It accomplished... It achieved the 1940s look and feel that it seems like so many movies and filmmakers can't... They can't do it. They cannot do it. Uh, I think what definitely helps is the use of old movie actors. The movie is littered... The supporting cast is littered with movie actors from... Years, years and years and years ago, unfortunately, I, none of them are alive now, uh, you do have Bill Murray, and, who is definitely, who's really funny. His character is really good. I got, more so than Dan Aykroyd, he definitely, he fits in with the whole 40s kind of feeling, uh, or uh, the 40s motif, I guess, so if that makes sense. And it just works. The story is goofy, it's zany. The only downfall, the only thing that I, I didn't care about the movie was the use of nudity yes on youtube there is nudity in this movie and it took away i thought for their for it really uh, for it being a 40s type of movie it seemed like they just added it because it was the 80s it's an 80s movie and you have stars from snl attached to the film so you had to throw in a pair of boobs a few pairs of boobs in the movie I love the transition into color when they do do the transition into color. I don't want to spoil or go too much into it because it's worth watching it and experiencing it for yourself because it's really cool. Even when they do make the transition into color, it's not bright 1984. Because even in 1984, with a high quality print, you can get some. I mean, the color looks nice. I mean, it looks like a movie that. It could look like a movie that was shot in the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, or even recently. But no, they keep with the technicolor. You know, when you take a black and white print and you colorize it, that's what it looks like. So it's really neat, and it still has a retro, old feel to it. And I really like it. It has some really funny moments in it. Uh, great dialogue. Um, the the lead, he's just, uh, just the it's weird he's significantly different than how he is in gremlins everything from his voice which could be due to the mono recording that they that they obviously use to go you know to keep with the the theme of the 40s film and the look of it you know he's black and white he looks young that he definitely has that very naive quality to him like most of the leading young leading boys trying to find you know their way in life. Uh, you know, did back in the '40s and '50s and '30s films. Uh, it's a good movie. I liked it. I, I think I would give it a three point five out of five. I highly recommend it, especially for film buffs. Three point five. I if I saw it at a movie theater it, with other people, I think it could even be a
0: four star movie. It's really good. I highly recommend it. Well, okay, then. So not all that much of a difference in between the. reviews on that one so let's see here we're going to move along to alan partridge alpha papa now this is a 2013 british action comedy film and it is uh stars steve uh, steve coogan it's reprising his portrayal of alan partridge which is a guy uh it's basically kind of like a glorified snl character would be an equivalent for us It, it think of it as someone like a character recurring character on type of on a type of uh snl show or maybe like Frasier, something like that and then they're making a movie out of it he is a blowhard basically (laughs) um an egotistical blowhard who is working at a station that's just gotten bought out and uh a disgruntled former employee, post buyout, comes in and takes hostages. And who's there to save the day? Alan Partridge. This movie, I felt, was something that was hard to was was much harder to appreciate not having a familiarity with the character beforehand. It's kind of like if uh, you went and saw The Ladies' Man back in the uh, early two thousands, late nineties, early two thousands, with uh, that starred Tim Motos, where he. Was reprising a role from SNL and doing a a call-in show on the radio. It also had lots of elements of Frasier, uh, Anchorman, as well in there. Not to the, uh, not in terms of the vulgarity per se, but just certain elements of that. I also the whole, almost the whole plot was done in the early '90s movie Airheads and so they all of these things were just very present as i'm watching this movie and so while i walk away from the movie thinking that it's that it's an okay movie and i gotta tell you there are some really funny things in this movie there are definitely excellent scenes lots of laughs to be had but it's just the story as a whole i really kind of felt was pretty weak and the acting was okay. The characterizations were definitely oddball and, and exactly what they were going for. And I'm and I'm certain that they were probably faithful to all of the people from the ba- from the original shows and stuff uh, that were given. I mean, uh, the, there was a show. Uh, the main show was called On the Hour, so I'm sure that the, the, the people who were brought back from those series uh, were definitely faithful representations of the characters. And, and of course, the people who were, who were brought back at the end of the day though the story seemed to be like it was just i don't know it just felt like it wasn't really coherent all the way through definitely some funny parts to it and i'm sure that had i been a fan of the series before i would find more to appreciate in that that being said uh, the movie falls just short of really liking it, but it is still better than okay. So this one for me, two point seven five out of five. Better than okay, not quite liked it, but definitely some things to watch. And if you are a fan of this series or character, you will probably enjoy this movie greatly. Cool. Yeah. Uh, this... Was that fair? See, was that was that fair? No, you, it was fair. I was going to. What you said about Airheads,
1: I totally forgot about Airheads. And you're right. This is kind of. Very similar to that. Well, it's similar, but then it's not similar. But then again, it's kind of similar due to it <laughs> being in a radio station. But uh, but yeah, and you know, I I definitely agree uh, for the most part with the story elements. But I have been aware. I am aware of the character. Was aware of the character before watching the movie. I have seen a couple of the Alan Partridge specials, and they're very funny. The character is funny. I love Steve Coogan. He just has—I I don't know—he's one of my favorite. He can pull off the egotistical, somewhat lovable, heartfelt dude. You know, and it's just he does it so damn well, and he does it with a trip when he plays a more over-the-top version of himself. And again, there he—he's egotistical, bigot, asshole. You know, but I mean, with Alan Partridge, he's not an asshole. He's just. He can get very... He's a little a little too high-minded. You know, when he, if he has a chance to shine, he'll take every advantage of that chance to shine. It's a very funny, funny, funny character. And it's hard for me... It's difficult for me to find a comedy, or it's been difficult for me to find a comedy, where I can look back on it and quote it and reminisce on hysterical scenes. I can with this movie, and Matt and I were talking about some hilarious moments from the film before the episode. And this is kind of like how I felt with It's a Disaster. And I'm not saying that Alan Partridge is the It's a Disaster of 2014. But it's definitely a, as enjoyable to me. And it's definitely littered with moments where you're like, that is some funny shit. Funny and smart shit. And you can, it's, to me at least, I can go back and rewatch the movie and enjoy it as much as I did the first time. Yeah, just some great, great, great stuff. It has Nazi humor in it, and Nazi humor is hilarious when Brits are doing it. So for me, this is a four-star movie. I liked it that much.
0: Right on. Alright, well then that's gonna bring us down to Life itself, the twenty fourteen documentary film on Roger Ebert. Roger Ebert? Good Lord, man, what the hell? <laughs> Roger Ebert <clears throat> and uh, comes from his memoirs as well as about his uh, cancer issues that he was dealing with there at the end of his life. and the film is basically a montage of part biography, part present day in terms of the filming of the documentary of. Uh, his of his battle with cancer, and part what he wanted to impart to the world about film. And those all of those parts are great, but in this case, the whole is actually less than the sum of its parts. I liked all of the individual aspects that the that the documentary tried to do, and in and in, and it's kind of odd because I really think that instead of one large movie, I think this would have been a great, say, thirty minute segment. You know, just chop it up into into four 30 minute segments, and then feature them individually. One on Roger Ebert's early life. One on his success and then or his early life and early success one focus one section focusing on uh his siskel and ebert and then one section focusing on uh post siskel and ebert and his career aside from siskel and ebert and then finally cancer the problem is is that with this movie how it is paced is all of these things are kind of sliced uh and layered together but they but they're very disjointed and so just as you're starting to really get into the grip of something that they're talking about from his life they'll then come back to today and you'll see but what they do to with today's the the segment that they're doing from the current recording uh doesn't really have anything to do, per se, with what you've just watched, nor does it necessarily have anything to do with what you're about to watch when they cut away again. And while I I, I definitely think that those aspects, when they're filming the documentary itself in the present tense, covering the, the latter part of Ebert's life, everything there is poignant, and it is important the stuff that they talk about with Siskel and Ebert and kind of also touching on how it affected cinema and the way people review cinema today even with what we're able to do with this show again very important seeing how he was raised and looking at the perspective from which he viewed cinema and why he worked the way he did and his early years and his alcoholism again all very important and and well done but again the it was just too disjointed and it really took away from the movie and actually began to wear on me by the end of the film. And I was sad to say that I was actually kind of glad when it was over. All in all, this movie is good, but really just barely. I think it would have been much better to either have just let the individual parts stand and air them on their own or just simply play them in order. Maybe bookend a little bit with some present day stuff. But just literally let it fall into place instead of trying to intersperse it with everything that was going on. So, I'm going to give this one three stars. Uh, but And I was disappointed because I was really expecting a five-star movie out of this. I was really looking forward to it. And there's a lot of good information to be had. And I think that it will also increase your enjoyment of movies um, just by watching it. But I really think that it's something that needs to be taken in doses and not all at not all at once. So, Tim take it away.
1: Life itself is definitely one of those documentaries that is an experience and it's really difficult to... I mean, I can't really go into detail about it because I, w- I wouldn't want to ruin it. I, it doesn't hold back. It, d- it pulls a lot of punches. It, it doesn't hold back at all. Um, what I mean by that is you see his dark side, you see his happier side... Uh, what I thought was interesting is that I've heard a lot of stories about Roger Ebert, especially those with him and Gene Siskel, and how they would argue and how they would, you know, how they basically hated each other for many years before they became the best friends that uh, we all kind of know that uh, they've become. You think you know him or you know about that situation, but you really don't. There's a happy dark side to Roger Ebert that I don't think anybody is really prepared to see. And I don't mean that in a bad way at all. I mean it in a very entertaining way. Uh, what I love about it is that Roger Ebert had this whole mindset, and you see this at the, the opening uh, quote at the beginning of the movie, is something along the lines of, I was the star in my own movie. That's how he always felt that he was his own movie star, or that the star in his own movie. Like, life was a movie, life was a film, and... Kind of like what Matt said, is when you watch this movie, you get that feeling that he wanted to be those characters that he loved and all those movies that he gave four stars to and uh, all, all those things. He's a very interesting guy, and it especially means something when you see him and how he reacts and how he acts When he after his surgery to his throat to his jaw when he has no lower jaw and he can't speak and he can't eat and he just takes everything in stride you see his ups you see some of his downs you see him struggle a lot and it was just very interesting to see how this movie flowed because it doesn't necessarily go in chronological order it begins and ends with his uh, his post his surgery and up until his it ends with his death pretty much, and it's very interesting and how Matt was saying that he thought it would have been better if the movie was broken up into four little episodes. I don't I don't think so. I, I think I don't I don't think that would work out as well as as he proposes because I enjoyed how this movie flip flopped because I wouldn't want to watch thirty minutes straight of the, the more current Roger Ebert, you know, of, of him suffering and of, of Chaz, his wife, her being upset. And it's just a very sad time. And I don't think he would want people to reflect upon his life with such, ne- not negative emotion, but with such sadness. And I think it was, I thought it was very smart with it jumping around Roger Ebert's timeline and showing him when he was... During his roughest times of then showing you his birth, his childhood, and him becoming a writer. Actually, he was always a writer, which is very interesting. It's just great listening to him or how they used him, his book narration, his book on tape narration, and how they kind of pepper that throughout the documentary. It's very interesting. I personally think this is... Four and a half, five star movie for sure. It's really good and it's highly, highly, highly effective. And it's not quite the biopic, you know, the actor, the filmmaker, the entertainer's biopic documentary that you would expect. You know, it's something different, it's something fresh, it's something new. You know, it's not just a few people sitting down, talking, and you just see clips of this person's life and they reflect on it. No, Roger Ebert started making a movie... A little while before he passed away, you know. So it get, it touches a lot of personal stuff, and it's quite fascinating. Yes, it's difficult to watch at at times, and it can get very very sad. But a big chunk of it, most of it, is highly entertaining and really good.
0: I give it four and a half five stars. Life itself. No, oh, that was great, Tim. Thank you. Very informative and very insightful. So next week, though. The movies are going to be, The Immigrant, Not Fade Away, and Barbarella, and maybe just for fun, maybe just maybe we might just have a little blurb about uh, Transformers, the fourth one, uh, Age of Extinction. Probably not, but just maybe we'll see. So I guess that's going to do it for us, right? Does that bring us to the end of the show, sir? That's correct. Spiel on. All right. Look at that. Spilling on. Okay. Well, the music, as always, that you've been listening to has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at reverbnation.com and facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, well, of course, we are still the SLS cast and you can check us out at SLScast.com. You can send an email to the show, all one word, the show at SLscast.com you can even follow us on Twitter at the SLS cast you can of course subscribe to us on iTunes you can even favorite us on Stitcher radio and of course like us on Facebook. So until next week this is Matt saying that thanks to Mickey Rourke, I get to say this I don't care what Tom Cruise says about therapy.
1: <laughs> oh that I kept waiting for something else to come uh, yeah and this is Tim I'll talk to you guys next week.